Welcome to the Lutheran History Podcast, where we cover over 500 years of Lutheranism. We hear new stories, examine old heroes of faith, and dig into the who, how, what, and why of history making. Whether you are a Lutheran seeking to understand your faith's rich roots, a history lover, or a person looking for stories of trials, tragedies, and triumphs, you'll find what you're looking for right here. Our guest for today is Dr. David Zerzen, President Emeritus of Concordia University, Texas. He's written around 25 articles, chapters, and books on Wendish subjects and is proud to have been designated by the Texas Wendish Heritage Society an honorary Wend. We'll talk about that, uh, what that means in a minute. Today, though, we'll be discussing one of his many articles, which was the lead article of the 2018 summer issue of the Concordia Historical Institute Quarterly, titled An Isolated Texas Lutheran Scholar Living in Hope. Dr. Zerzen lives with his wife, Julie, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Dr. Zerzen, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure to be here, Pastor Phelps. So your article is focused on one man. I, I don't know how to pronounce his name because I've only read it. Is it Jan Killian or Killian? Uh, he would have been born Jan, J-A-N, Killian, right. And then he became... Um, because of the German environment, Johann Killian, and then here in the United States, he became John Killian. So if you Google any of those, you'll find him. Interesting. That's one of those many transitional changes a lot of people went through with their with their names. So, so Jan Killian, um, and you focused on his unorthodox theology. Well, before we get into the, the issue, the theology, uh, can you tell us a bit about the man? Can you introduce us to him? Okay, um, Jan uh, was born as an only child in a um, place in Saxony called uh, Dothen, Dothen, and um, 1811. And um, his parents died, so uh, he was able to succeed, survive actually, only because he inherited the house. And with that, he paid for education to take him to Leipzig and um, graduate with the same kind of education that C.F.W. Walther earned. Uh, they both were graduates in theology from the University of Leipzig. He was a very good student, and um, he always dreamed about being a missionary. It was kind of something at the heart of his, his own um, theology. And the possibilities for that uh, kind of disappeared one after another. So long story short, when um, the opportunity came that he was called by a community that wanted to leave um, Prussia and uh, Saxony, so there were two congregations he had served after he became a pastor, uh, they asked him to be their pastor. Sometimes people say he was the leader of the group. Technically, he was not. He was, um, he was called as the pastor of the group, and there were about 600 uh, which were to go on one ship, um, the Ben Nevis, named after the highest mountain in Scotland. And uh, they headed for the United States, not without some difficulties because um, smallpox uh, affected some of the people who were en route. And um, they had to stop in Liverpool and they uh, had a number of people dying before they left and dying at sea. So uh, about... 60 people died before they ultimate before the group ultimately uh, came to Houston in the United States. So that was his story. Um, when he came to the United States, uh, he, along with the uh, people who were responsible for finding land, settled in an area he named Serban because of the uh, language that uh, he is a Slav, a Sorb, um, had and and so Serban became the name for that uh, little settlement, and he served as the pastor there for many years. Um, he had been a pastor in in um, Germany for eleven. So when he came to this country, spent much more time as a pastor here than he'd ever been in the old country, and he served as um, a pastor, ultimately preaching in three languages. 
uh, as a teacher uh, every weekday for many years, as a farmer, as a homeopath who provided medicines for the people in the community, uh, as a kind of a community leader, everybody finally looked up to him as the leader, even though he was not officially the leader of the group. And um, what we're going to be talking about tonight is his um, own theology and the challenges. And this is really the first time that this theology has ever been explored at that depth, because most people have remembered him in Texas and also um, just in general in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, um, as a leader of the ethnic group called the Wends in Texas, but not so much as a theologian. Yeah, and that's what makes this article historically significant and, and interesting. Now, I generally speaking, when we talk about Lutheran immigrants to America, I think people picture them as uh, being German or Norwegian or possibly some other kind of Scandinavian. Um, but as you already mentioned, he's not part of those groups. He is a Wend, and his people are Wends. Uh, but I don't know of any country... Uh, called Wendland. I know my uh, <laughs> seminary president last name was Wendland. Um, but uh, could you explain to us what is a Wend? Why, why are there Lutheran Slavs? That seems a bit odd to our it normal would be, history. You know about uh, your seminary president's the history of his name, uh, for example, uh, Wendland. But um, in the case of Killian and the case of the people who accompanied him to the United States, they were Slavic. Uh, the only other Slavic group of Lutherans that came to the United States were the Slovaks. And they settled in Ohio and a number of other places. But um, the Wends came to Texas. And if you would ask today, uh, who were the Wends? Um, maybe they would say they were uh, the Sorbs because that name, and it's too complicated to explain why they were sometimes Sorbs and why they were sometimes Wends. But in any case, when they came to the United States, they knew themselves as Wends. Even though today in Germany, this group of people who live somewhere between Berlin and Dresden in a uh, section called by the, the Wends or the Sorbs, Lusatia, uh, the Lausitz in, in German. And there were people among them who spoke uh, a dialect, which is... Um, either Upper Sorbian or Lower Sorbian, and the two dialects are not mutually intelligible. So while there are many common words between them, there's a compatibility to some degree between the Wends and um, the um, Czechs and, and the Polish. It's a, a Slavic language, but they never had their own country. And that's why there was no country called the Wendish land, as you say. Um, they, they were always incorporated ultimately in a part of Germany so that Germany has taken on an attitude toward them of, of protection. And that has changed quite a bit from um, the Nazi era to the communist era to the current German government era in terms of what the attitude is and how much support the German government uh, is going to provide for this minority ethnic group. And not to get too off focus from this paper, but since we are introducing this topic for the first time on the podcast, um, you've mentioned that you um, have studied other aspects of it. Were, were these people um, early embracers of the Reformation? They, they seem to be living very close to uh, Wittenberg and Luther. Were they affected by that early on? Yeah, I've written an interesting article, which is worthy of a different uh, podcast in, in, in talks about uh, Luther's attitude toward the Wends, because Luther said some things about the Wends which aren't too kind. Um, that has to be understood in this sense, that um, the Wends moved in around Wittenberg, and they were a people without a written language. Uh, they did not speak German. They only spoke their Wendish. And they were um, originally pagan before the Reformation brought them Christianity. So uh, Luther sometimes referred to them rather disparagingly um, in a way that some people might make ethnic uh, comments today that we would consider racist. Uh, and that was problematic 
um, even at that time, I would say, because um, the, the winds they um, they were uneducated, uh, and they um, they were farmers, and they supplied Wittenberg with uh, produce, and Wittenberg was dependent on the produce which they supplied. So that's how Luther came to know them, and ever so gradually, as a result of the Reformation, um, some of these brightest and best of the Wends were sent to Wittenberg and studied there and graduated in theology and became pastors, Lutheran pastors. Yeah, so so Killian is in a long history of, of Lutheran Wends, you might say. Okay. Right. All right. Well, let's get... Um, Onto the main topic of your paper, you, um, through your own research and translation work, have uncovered um, that, that Killian was more than a, a leader uh, in a religious sense of an ethnic group, um, helping them find their way in a new world. He also um, had some rather uh, thought-out theological statements uh, and thoughts, and especially on the issue of millennialism. Now, for our readers who may not know what that is, or for many more who maybe have heard of it before but need a review. Can you explain to our audience, what is millennialism? Uh, probably the simplest uh, beginning would be to say that uh, the word millennial comes uh, from the Latin mille, which is a thousand, and it has a counterpart in Greek, uh, which is kilia, uh, and from that comes kiliasm, and that also uh, refers to a thousand. So um, it, it uh, refers back to uh, Revelation 20, uh, verses 1 through 6, in, in which um, uh, the author is talking about a thousand years, a thousand year reign. And the meaning of that is the challenge for people to try to interpret it. And uh, Killian uh, had his own views on that, as did many people at that time. So. Um, the meaning of the thousand years uh, was understood already in early Christianity. Uh, in, the, in the very first centuries, uh, there were people who looked at that uh, as um, uh, a literal possibility that either, and, and finally these um, three terms came to be important, there was premillennialism, in, in which um, the um, uh, Christ would return uh, and the thousand years would begin. And then there was post-millennialism in which the thousand years would take place and then Christ would return. And then there was amillennial or millennialism uh, in which the um, uh, kingdom of Christ reigns continuously from uh, on earth from the time of uh, uh, Christ's presence on earth until his final coming. So if you had to try to place Killian in those three concepts, he would fit somewhere between the last two. Um, and he would never have said that he fits within those two because he wouldn't have known those terms. Um, those, those terms didn't exist at his time. What it means is that, uh, in terms of the challenge that he was faced with in the church, uh, Killian wanted to say that you have to take the Bible literally, and if it talks about a thousand years, we've got to figure out a way to use that language and figure out when those thousand years are going to take place. And the church, meaning the Lutheran church at the time, which had some backing already with uh, Augsburg, um, Confessions uh, Article uh, 17, uh, saying that this was a Jewish concept, really, and we don't want to get involved with that uh, within the Lutheran Church. So we can talk about some of the details of that, but that's a little bit of background on millennialism. Yeah, thank you for introducing the topic. Um, and in your article, I think you mentioned, um, and I, this is what it was brought up to me in college, too, that I think there's a famous book series called, I think, the Left Behind series, right? Yes, so I think a right. lot of a lot of people are exposed to that in in our current modern culture through that or through other um, more common things. But that's what we're talking about is, you know, in a way, every Christian is a millennialist because they, you know, if they take, if they read Revelation 20, 
they see there's a thousand years, but it's what do you do with that thousand years? Um, what does it what does it actually mean? Is is the issue? And and in the um, in the United States today, for example, uh, with the Left Behind series that you mentioned, um, you could find that sort of theology, which is basically pre-millennial, uh, the idea that Christ will return and then there will be a thousand years with Christ in charge. You can find that in uh, the Church of Christ, uh, which is a Texas denomination. You find it in some Southern Baptists, but not all. Um, the idea that um, we are waiting for the moment when Christ will return and then he will rule on earth for a thousand years. That was one view of uh, millennialism. But not, not Killian's view. Not Killian's at all. Yeah. But I, I really think that when the word millennial was mentioned in the leaders of the Missouri Synod at that time, uh, there was a kind of a panic because they thought, whoa, uh, this is uh, the very thing that uh, we think is craziness about Christ returning and then ruling for a thousand years. But Killian never intended that at all. And he made very clear what his views on the millennial were. All right, and we'll, we'll get into that as, as we continue. Now, you do suggest that in 19th century America, there was a commitment to progress in general, an expansion that was rooted in, I'm just going to quote part of your phrase here, millennial optimism created by religious revivalism in the 19th century. Can you unpack that a bit and explain that thought for us so we can understand the broader American context of this topic? Sometime between 1840 and 1865 uh, in the United States, there was a progressive uh, movement afoot, which um, challenged a lot of things, including slavery, uh, the greed that belonged to a society which was uh, beginning to be um, uh, rather um, successful economically. Um, the poverty, on the other hand, that affected uh, some people in desperation who fall be fell between the cracks in capitalism. And um, there was a lot of reform which was taking place in terms of challenging alcohol alcoholism or uh, women's rights, offering women's rights or slavery. And um, those issues were um, part of the Great Awakening which arose in the religious community because they wanted to find ways in which to support all of that newness and that progress. And so millennialism fits right into that because it has um, a sense of hope about it. It has a sense of future, regardless of what you think about uh, pre-millennial or post-millennial. Uh, the fact is that it was looking forward toward the reign of Christ and the future and the hope that things were going to be getting better in each and every way. So that's how millennialism, millennialism fits into that. Yeah, I remember in um, college, one of the criticisms was of, of either pre or post millennialism is that it, it kind of gets people to almost hope for a heaven on earth instead of heaven itself. And all these movements, this progressivism, um, socially, politically, seem to fit into this idea we could make we can bring it about through our own progress, through our own actions. Uh, in my own research, I've also noticed too, um, this has a lot to, this is a big part behind at least some groups, world missions. Uh, they're saying, look, we are converting the whole world. It's only a matter of time. Uh, we'll convert so many people and then we will you know, bring about the, either we are fulfilling the millennium or we are bringing about the, the millennium. All right. Uh, so next, let's talk about, um, as you mentioned briefly, but just for our kind of uh, another Lutheran context, you already mentioned the Augsburg Confession. Um, what was Luther's view of millennialism and was his view adopted by all of his followers and theological descendants? Well, it's not possible to say that there was one view. Uh, it is true on the one hand that Luther was an Augustinian. And Augustine had rejected millennialism uh, in terms of a thousand-year reign of Christ. Um, so the Augustinians 
following uh, their um, their mentor uh, would have imbued that in, in Luther as well. But even though he was not a millennialist, he was an apocalyptic thinker. And so very often you find Luther saying things which sound outrageous to us today when he, for example, uh, tried to interpret and make sense of the, the peasants' revolt. Um, the, the language became apocalyptic. Um, and um, some of the things he said about the Pope, uh, you know, that language was apocalyptic. Um, how he interpreted uh, the Pope as the Antichrist. Uh, that's very much in the sense of millennial thought. Uh, the concept of the Antichrist comes right out of the book of Revelation. Uh, but um, uh, as far as millennialism per se is concerned, Luther would never have thought of himself in that kind of a category. Some of the people who followed uh, Luther had a variety of uh, millennial opinions in the movement of the um, uh, century after is under pietism, for example. Uh, pietism had some uh, millennial thoughts um, and some of the pietists who came from Germany to the United States brought some of that thinking with them. Um, uh, Schmucker, for example, uh, was one who claimed that he uh, he could understand the, um, uh, the the millennial challenge and could even figure out exactly when the thousand-year reign was going to begin. Um, so um, there were some Lutherans who picked up on very direct millennial ideas that um, had been popularized, but um, Killian was not one of those. Yeah, so I think that's just important for, you know, anyone studying this. It's almost, you know, could, is it fair to say a lot of these Lutherans, it was almost more a, a personal held belief, a personal opinion that would often vary greatly um, from other Lutherans' views? Sure. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. I, I've seen that um, with, well, you mentioned the uh, the senior schmucker, John George, I believe was was his name. He kind of was was big with that millennialism, but then his son, the more famous one, uh, Samuel Simon uh, Schmucker, he, he steamship. What's that? Steamship, steamship Schmucker. Oh, that's steamship. what they, I haven't heard that. Yeah, well, he, he's you know he's the the he's Mister General Synod, as I kind of call him. You know, he he. Well, I, he acquired that that nickname not just because of the SS, but because oh. he tended to ramrod through and he was like a, a steamship moving ahead yeah and they worked out for a couple decades um but not not all the way but yeah but you know he he definitely promoted his own version of that and I, i've noticed that myself too so there are wide parts of american lutheranism that's that was exposed and maybe um, embraced various forms of millennialism and the one though it wasn't really the the american lutherans that came into conflict um, with the Missouri Synod or with Killian. Um, you mentioned a bit about Wilhelm Lea and his views. Could you explain a bit more about his importance, his significance to this whole uh, topic that we're discussing today? Um, I couldn't really speak about uh, Lea's specific views on millennialism, but I could say that... Um, Leia had some rather open-minded views, and um, he was kind of an easy-to-get-along-with guy in many respects. Um, when the challenge was made um, by Winnikin, I think, to um, uh, abandon his project in Michigan, um, and, and uh, they moved to Iowa, and the Iowa Senate developed, um, it kind of showed that uh, Leo was a, um, a flexible person. And in that sense, uh, Killian would have thought of himself as flexible also because he thought that the Missouri Synod was way too rigid uh, on many topics, but certainly on this issue of millennialism. Um, and in that sense, he was somewhat like Leia 
that they were both uh, rather even-tempered people. Yeah, and I think that's represented by the famous open questions position that comes throughout uh, history later. Just kind of there are some things where we're not going to nail down a, a firm answer where others would say, the Bible's pretty clear about that. You know, let the scripture interpret scripture and it's pretty clear. Uh, amillennialism is the way to go. I think uh, the basic tension between Walther and Killian would be summed up in that uh, idea that you're uh, enunciating there, namely that um, if um, if you tried to um, speak too rigidly about something, um, you create more problems than if you are too open-minded. Uh, Killian's view would have been that it's important to be somewhat open-minded uh, about some of these uh, issues that the confessions have not spoken about. And uh, Walther's view was that uh, the church must speak uh, soundly on issues where the scripture has spoken, and they may have differed. They did differ on what the scripture actually said. So you mentioned that while some people have thought that Killian's millennial perspectives were developed in the United States, you and others have traced his millennialism back to Europe. Well, can you explain a bit what those views were that he carried across the Atlantic to America? Okay, first of all, just to say how that was possible, because um, the remarkable thing is that Killian had a... Uh, a correspondence that he maintained between European churchmen and uh, also other places around the world, Australia, for example. And uh, that correspondence is extant. I mean, it, it did not get burned up or disappear, anything like that. But it was just a lot of clutter until um, something called the Wendish Research Exchange, uh, which is a website, uh, categorized all of those so that you can go online if any listener would want to do that, for example, through the Wendish Research Exchange, they could uh, find all the correspondence of Killian um, categorized chronologically and according to topic. So without that, I could not have done this article. And I was uh, able to listen to what he had to say to all kinds of colleagues in Europe about uh, millennial ideas. Uh, the, the issue is twofold. One, it's not so much um, the specific issues of the millennium that he was discussing as it is the, the, the simple proof of the fact that um, Killian, at least in 30 letters to European colleagues, talked about millennial issues. And that alone is proof of the fact that he didn't get the idea here in this country. Uh, but some of the things that he talked about were uh, that he was really not being allowed uh, to uh, share the viewpoints that he had. And he felt that if this were to be a country which had freedom, I and mean, this is an argument we hear today uh, about other things as well, that uh, he didn't feel like a free person because he couldn't voice his opinion on some of these issues which he felt strongly about. Yeah, you noted, you know, that he, he wrote about this in at least 30 letters. And to me, that just seems like almost an obsession with, with the topic. I don't know, um, and you know, obviously better than I do, but were, were these letters focused on the topic or were, was it more of he mentioned it in, in passing or maybe a little bit of uh, well, both? That, that, that's a very good point. Um, I don't think that Killian was obsessed on the subject of millennialism. I think that I'm writing a, an article about millennialism, and I'm fortunate to be able to find through the Wendish Research Exchange these letters and read them. Uh, they're written in German, and um, then uh, try to come to some kind of an understanding of what his viewpoint was on this. But he talks about other things too. This is not all he talked about, or he would be a madman. Yeah, <laughs> and he, he addresses many issues, but I happen to pick on the ones that related to my topic. It's important to frame it that way or else we'll think, uh, oh, you know, our, our listeners may only associate him with, with this issue. Um, but but you've spent some, some time studying him in other areas as well. So if it's too harsh to say he was obsessed with millennialism, 
I'll rephrase my original question and ask, why do you think Killian was so interested in millennialism? Um, I think there are several reasons why he was interested in it. He was concerned, first of all, that you had to uh, accept scripture um, as it was. You could not jump around an issue you had. If it said um, that there were a thousand years, you had to accept that as a thousand years. Uh, in our terminology today, you would probably say he was a literalist um, and he accepted the scripture just as it was. Uh, if people in later ages would say, well, that was highly symbolic uh, or that was apocalyptic language, uh, Killian didn't know that terminology or those concepts. He simply knew was that the Bible said what it said and you had to accept it as it was. So uh, that was very important to him. And um, then I think it's also true that um, when he talks about um, some of these issues that were uh, important to him, he had colleagues uh, in this country. Uh, I do mention this George Schieferdecker, who interestingly enough uh, was a colleague of his from the University of Leipzig. Um, and, and he had similar kinds of opinions. So he had some colleagues that he was kind of interacting with, writing together about. And their basic issue was not just getting the Missouri Senate to take a stand on millennialism, but getting the Missouri Senate to be a little bit more open and um, willing to listen to different ideas. So that was an important issue for Killian. So would you care to share some of his specific viewpoints on millennialism? You mentioned earlier he was maybe somewhere between, uh, I think, post and, and amillennial. Um, what did he believe or what were his conclusions, having read uh, Revelation 20 very literally? Um, I think um, very important to, to him was the concept of prophecy. Uh, we have come to look at prophecy a bit differently today and to feel that prophecy is not just prediction, but prophecy also is God's judgment upon something which was uh, to take place in the future and um, in the Old Testament, for example. So um, Killian didn't have that kind of context, and he only uh, could think of um, the importance of taking prophecy literally, and he was wrestling with this view, uh, which was popular even in the Missouri Synod, where people would say uh, the, the end of the world could come at any moment. It could just come around the corner when you're not expecting it and just capture you. Uh, off guard, and Killian said that's nonsense um, because, um, being a literalist, if you um, if you take the Bible seriously, you have to accept the fact that the prophecies have to be fulfilled, or God can't be taken seriously. And so that was very important to Killian uh, to believe that uh, we had to take the prophecies as they are. Um, and we had to take them as, as, as seriously as possible. Um, and that would mean that it's true, the end of the world could come without our suspecting that it's going to come, but not until all the prophecies have been fulfilled. That was a big issue that he was fighting on with um, the Missouri Synod. Um putting him between post-millennial and amillennial. Um, Killian would have said about uh, millennialism that um, it's quite possible that the millennium is taking place right now. And that as we become more and more dedicated to our Lord and serving him, that we are living in the thousand-year era. And that's the meaning of, um, that's kind of an amillennial view. 
And if you take a look at what the Missouri Synod says, I was just reading something uh, in the um, uh, Concordia Bible um, and, and what they're saying about uh, that particular issue. Uh, it's quite similar, uh, the idea about amillennial or uh, the, the thousand-year reign could be taking place right now. That was really Killian's view. Yeah, and that is kind of the, the confessional Lutheran view that we are in the end times. And, and you're saying that was kind of what he was saying as well. But there needed to be specific prophecies that you needed to watch out for before the end could come. Is, is that a good summary of what he was saying? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So the, what's the point of tension, I guess? Um, if he's saying we, we are in, in the end times, where, where's the conflict then? Well, because uh, there were statements that he had um, noticed in, in uh, Missouri Synod writings that said uh, at any moment um, – the end could come. The last judgment would, would take place. And he said, you can't say that because all of the prophecies have not been fulfilled, and that would be denying Christ. So he wanted, the point of tension was that Killian felt there should be an openness for discussion between him uh, as a spokesman for this viewpoint and the church leaders. And the church leaders, from my own perspective, um, did not really carefully try to listen to what Killian was saying. They were afraid that he was a millennialist, quote-unquote, and that that was a dangerous position, and they weren't really asking themselves how his views as millennialists, as a millennialist, were different from what some of these were. So in many senses, he was not... Um, he was not paid attention to it all. He even says in his letters, he never got one syllable from Walter uh, after a certain point because uh, the feeling was that uh, he had been written off. I find that interesting because um, it stands in contrast to the other example that you give of uh, Georg or George Schieferdecker, who uh, was called to account for his uh, millennialist views and then removed from the from the synod. Um, why don't you think that the Killian was viewed with that same level of seriousness? I would just assume that, especially with Walther and, and the rest of the Missouri Synod uh, leadership with their uh, striving for doctrinal purity, doctrinal unity, that they would kind of expect some kind of conformity from Killian. Did you do you have any opinion or any evidence as, as to why they they treated Killian so differently from Schieferdecker? Meaning that they didn't uh, excommunicate him, basically, uh, yeah, or, or start that process. Yeah, well, it's a it's a moving process, actually. I mean, I'm very touched by the fact that when the convention excommunicated Schieferdecker, the entire convention got on its knees and sang the litany. Uh, they knew that that was something um, unbelievable that they were actually doing. Uh, and uh, Kelly continued to work with uh, Schieferdecker and others to try to turn that around, but that never happened. Uh, I think Schieferdecker's point of view was a little bit more extreme than Killian's, number one. And number two, um, no real study has ever been done on Schieferdecker, um, like I did on Killian, and it would be interesting to pursue that and find out what the real differences were. Yeah, and for audience members, I call dibs on that because I'm kind of a the, the Winnikin scholar, so I want to see Winnikin's uh, <laughs> analysis on that. But I suppose I can't force anyone from from not studying that before I get to it. But yeah, that's something I find very interesting too. Um, is just this unity. Uh, as, as far as what, what the leaders are, are teaching and preaching and how that's handled. All right. Well, you, you mentioned, or at least you alluded to some of the weaknesses of, of Killian's exegetical approach. Would you care to talk about that a bit um, from your own perspective? And I might, might come in for my own. 
Well, first of all, on the positive side, uh, was a remarkable biblical scholar, Killian was. He knew his scripture backwards and forwards. And uh, the man who became his uh, son-in-law at one point, uh, Killian's daughter, married the president of the Western District. Um, and um, he said of Killian, he had never met a man who... Uh, knew his scripture and the confessions as well as he did, or or even Luther. He had a set of Luther's works. Uh, and um, so he was really um, very, very schooled in all of that. But in terms of um, weaknesses in his, um, his outlook, in his view, um, I don't know if there was a point of arrogance in... Uh, Achillean, where he felt he needed to be listened to. Um, I think um, his own his own attitude toward churches in the Texas area um, was uh, problematic. He didn't feel he fit in really anywhere. It was a kind of a a lifestyle more than a theological perspective that Killian who grew up as an orphan and then um, didn't really find a, a place, so to speak, in the German church and emigrated with the dissenters. Um, always thought of himself as somewhat of an outsider. And he was never that comfortable, uh, even in the relationship with the Missouri Synod, because he thought of himself uh, as an outsider who was trying to fit into a new church body that was not entirely his own. He hadn't grown up in it. Yeah, that, I think that's a, an amazing insight into his personality. You know, uh, ethnically, geographically, he was removed from, from the main body. It almost seems as if just his personality would almost feel uncomfortable if he if he was just going along with what everyone else was saying. That's kind of what I... Uh, read into the situation um you know just looking at his exegetical approach um you know i i would want to read the bible literally but i think as you mentioned not literalistically you know we we do need to recognize where symbolism is is clearly used and, and revelation is clearly a book full of symbolism and to insist on uh, some of that literal stuff would be uh, maybe the source of, of those problems and differences. Now, uh, apart from promoting a dissenting view of millennialism, uh, according to your research, you, as we already mentioned, you, you said Killian was really trying to um, open up and maybe create some breathing room for discussion on, on different views within um, the leadership, the, the pastorship uh, within the Missouri Synod. Um, I, do you mind if I ask you a question off off the script about that? Sure. Who, who do you think is, is, is one, you know, Walther's view for Missouri of a very uh, a rigid, there's one right way to interpret things? Or do you think uh, within Missouri Synod, Killian's view is, is more appreciated of faithfulness to scripture, but we're going to have uh, some space to discuss what things mean? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, in the first place, um, Killian's view would not have won in the sense that Kill Killian had followers because nobody even knows his views. Uh, our discussion here tonight is the first time that Killian's view has been discussed uh, openly um, in, in recent years. Um, so uh, it's not because people are following. The question is more broadly as to whether people are looking for a more open-ended or open um, view of issues rather than you know, Walther's very strict, rigid um, interpretation of that. That's an interesting question. And I think across the board, there are people in, in both camps, as it were. Yeah. And as an outsider, that's an interesting perspective, because when I saw both of those men in their positions, I thought, well, from what I've encountered, I, I've seen both. Um, being a Wisconsin Synod guy myself, you know, the, it's almost automatic. Whatever Walther said, that's kind of what our 
we would we would be inclined to agree with him if not exactly what he's saying but the approach that that he would he would take so um but i think that's a fair point you're making if no no one's really following killian but maybe his his viewpoint is represented yeah a, a certain cry for for openness and um and not just um, a single-minded approach to everything. Um, I think there are people who call for that, but um, they would never say we're followers of Killian because yeah. they don't know what he thinks. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you for your answers uh, just on the content of, of your research. It take, takes the bulk of our time. Um, but you mentioned throughout our discussion some rather unique um discoveries and applications of this knowledge like you said kind of the first time this this information is being brought uh, forward both in your article and now today in this this podcast episode i'll just ask you what was your research method like for this paper well it was basically uh reading um documents articles talking with people uh, some correspondence with people in, in Germany about it, and uh, a lot of use of the letters which are available on the Wendish Research Exchange. So is this how that project got started? You came across those letters and found this, this topic? That's a good question. I'm trying to remember why I got interested in this in the first place. I've always been interested in Killian, okay? And, and my background with that is that when I came to Concordia as president, I have to admit I didn't even know who the Wends were. I'm not Wend by, by ethnic heritage, but I became very interested in their background and in, in their own views as, a, as an ethnic group and uh, in their uh, kind of idolizing of Jan Killian uh, as their leader uh, historically, when in fact he wasn't called to be their leader, he was called to be their pastor. Nevertheless, uh, he had such a profound influence on them that I became somewhat fascinated by him. And uh, the more I read about him, um, these were some issues. Nobody had ever really done a, a theological article on his own theology. So I thought it was high time to do that. Did you ha encounter any challenges in conducting your research? I don't think that there were any real issues that stood in my way of getting to the bottom of what I wanted to get to. That's good. And so it seems as if you, well, you know, you came across an important topic um, and it was just all laid out in front of you, ready, ready to be picked up by someone. And that's just the way it goes sometimes. Uh, sometimes it goes that way. I mean, he was a fascinating man in the sense that when he lived in Europe, um, parsonage, you still see that today, and his um, um, Europe at that time was fairly advanced, you know, for the uh, um, early 1800s, but when he got to, to Texas, he had to live in a log cabin for the rest of his life, and it was primitive, and that log cabin had to serve as well as his church for the first years, so I can't imagine how they packed them all in there on a wintry day, but um, that's where he did his writing. That's where he did his his uh, composing of, of of hymns and poetry. I mean, he was a remarkable person. He not only wrote music, he wrote poetry, and uh, we published an entire book of his songs that he's written. So, do you have any unanswered questions about this this topic of of Killian's theology? Um. I think on that particular issue, that's my swan song. <laughs> I don't personally see myself, you know, going in to address that particular issue on his view of millennialism anymore. Someone may choose to pick something up about it, but I, I don't have any uh, unanswered questions for myself. So uh, in general, do you think there are more areas of potential research on, on Killian or, or the Wends or Lutheran's well, and millennialism uh, issue? Certainly there are. I mean, with respect to the winds, I'm translating a book right now called, uh, well, it's called uh, Serbsky Protika, but that's that's a Wendish uh, title. And it was originally written in Wendish, which I don't read. Uh, so then the author of the book, Trudla Malenkova, uh, that's her Wendish title, 
uh, name, but she's a Trude, Trudy Marling, is her German name. And uh, she's written this book, which uh, describes uh, in um, text and provides pictures for all the monuments in Germany for winds of importance. And it's astonishing to me to translate this book and to read this because the numbers of Lutherans who were significant scientists and historians and pastors and what have you in this very small ethnic group is just remarkable and it's worth uh, publishing the book. Well, interesting. So that's a piece of that's a piece of Wendish history, especially Wendish Lutheran history, that I find really important and interesting. Yeah, maybe I'll have to ask my my old professor uh, if his family's in there or something like that. Yeah. All right. Uh, and then finally, last question: What would you like to see more research and writing done on within Lutheran history in general? Um. Some things that interest me that I wondered whether I might write an article on them. Um, one is um, called a simul simultaneum, uh, is a, a Latin term for two churches which are united together uh, in a common edifice. And that happened because as a result of the Reformation, maybe you had one Catholic church in this town, in this village, but what were you going to do with these new Lutherans? Were you going to build a new building for them? No, they cut the building in half somehow, and on one side the Lutherans would worship, and on the other side the Catholics. Now, there are a bunch of those buildings scattered around Germany today, and I think their story is really an interesting one to tell. Uh, another one that I got interested in because... Um, a Wendish man at a, uh, a historical institute in Germany wrote a, um, a history of pastoral dynasties among the winds. And you had this thing where you had uh, grandfather, father, and, and son, three generations, sometimes even four, who would serve in Lutheran parishes uh, and the dynasty would be perpetuated, and that was something unique among the Wends. Uh, I got interested in the fact that the same thing is true in our own church bodies in the United States. I know in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, for example, there were notable examples where there was a, a grandfather and a, and a son and his son who became pastors. So I think that's an interesting story to write for someone. Yeah. Very Maybe interesting. You. Yeah, well, I got my plate full, but yeah, that's an interesting one for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Zerzen, thank you for your time today. You're quite welcome. Enjoyed it. And now, uh, finally, to our audience members, I'll just ask you a question. If you've liked what you've heard on this podcast, would you consider supporting the show in a number of ways? Uh, first, uh, the best and simplest way is to share this episode on social media or directly with a a link to a friend who may find this episode or the Lutheran History Podcast in general interesting, helpful, or intellectually stimulating. If you'd like to help in another way, we do have a Patreon site uh, to help support our monthly hosting fees for this episode. Thank you for tuning in with us this week, and in another 15 days, you can look forward to another episode of the Lutheran History Podcast. 